0: Greetings, fellow traveler on this little rock tumbling through space. I'm Fred. This is my front porch. Come and sit a bit, and let's talk for a little while. There are ideas to be discussed on this old set of nicely nailed together boards. Can we have a Star Trek economy? The economics of the future is somewhat different. You see, money doesn't exist in the 24th century. The acquisition of wealth is no longer the driving force in our lives. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. Jean-Luc Picard first contact I loved Star Trek as a child because of its cool technology who wouldn't want to have a gun that doesn't have to kill wouldn't it be awesome to be able to beam up from one place to another and who wouldn't want to carry around an instrument that allowed you to talk to people thousands of miles from you and as I grew up I saw some of those wonderful devices invented You're probably listening to this on one of them. There are parts of Star Trek that probably simply can't exist. In fact, its most basic concept is, to my knowledge, impossible. We're never going to travel beyond the speed of light. Einstein showed that to me when I was 15, and no one has ever been able to show me he was wrong. If we produce a warp engine... I will be ecstatic to admit my error, and I will be equally excited to acknowledge my mistake in my near certainty that we will never be able to beam down to a planet as soon as we have that warp drive. We do have weapons that are approaching the phaser. One need not fire lead bullets anymore. Tasers exist and nearly two-thirds of the population of the planet, now has a cell phone which is at least as good as Captain Kirk's communicator. There are even cell phones that can act almost as tricorders in their ability to measure certain functions of the body. While some of Roddenberry's fantasy can never be reality, much of it already is, and we're better off for it. But, what of the rest of his vision? I love Star Trek as an adult because of its extraordinary society. Their greatest concerns in life truly are bettering themselves and the rest of humanity. Their physiological needs are all met. For the most part, their safety needs are met. They aren't struggling to pay rent or put food on the table. Much, but not all, crime has been eliminated because people have less need to commit crimes to fulfill their physiological needs. I'm much more likely to go rob a store in order to feed my wife and children than I am to do it for the fun of it. If my physiological needs are met, most of my motives for committing crimes evaporate. I expect the same is true for you and for the guy next to you too. The higher level needs Maslow's famous hierarchy are all needs to be met by each individual. How one finds love and a sense of belonging is an expression of identity. It's not the work of the world, but of each unique person in each one's unique way. This is also true of esteem and self-actualization, which is the ability To be creative and to work for the benefit of the rest of the world. The world's interference in those endeavors would be a Borg-like threat to our individuality. For those who don't know Maslow's Pyramid, in my original article I was nice enough to show you a picture of it, I can't do that here, so let me go over it. At the bottom we have our physiological needs, breathing, food, water, sex, sleep, homeostasis, excretion. Next we have our safety needs, security of body, of employment, of resources, of morality, of the family, of health, of property. Then we have love and belonging, friendship, family, sexual intimacy. Next, we have esteem, self-esteem, confidence, achievement, respect of others, respect by others. And finally, we have self-actualization, morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem-solving, lack of prejudice, acceptance of facts. I believe that we live in a world in which we are now able to meet the bottom two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy for all human beings. We have the resources and the technology necessary. It seems to me that the economics of Star Trek that I admire and envy so much are based on three realities. One, a post-scarcity society. There are thousands of hours to be done on this subject, and the debate about the use of the replicator alone is sufficient to be worthy of a doctoral dissertation, but I'm using this in the limited sense that the world is capable of providing all the basic human needs, food, water, shelter, medical care, clothing, and means to participate in society, transportation, communication, and education. Our civilization is already capable of meeting the bottom two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy for every human being. 2. A Resource-Based Society There's a group called the Venus Project that is actually working toward achieving this goal. What is it? It begins with the radical idea that the planet is the heritage of all people. We need to work out how to use the resources the planet can produce to provide what people need as efficiently as possible. This is their basic goal, quoted from their website. The Venus Project proposes an alternative vision of what the future can be if we apply what we already know in order to achieve a sustainable New World civilization. It calls for a straightforward redesign of our culture in which the age-old inadequacies of war, poverty, hunger, debt, and unnecessary human suffering are viewed not only as avoidable, but as totally unacceptable. Anything less will result in a continuation of the same catalog of problems inherent in today's world. You can learn more about them in the notes. Three, an empathetic civilization. The idea that we extend our empathy, not just to our blood ties, or our tribal ties, or our religious ties, or our national ties, but to the entire species, and finally, even to our shared biosphere. We know we have the technology necessary for this because we can all feel empathy at the same time in response to disasters. This is true when we hear of horrifying tsunamis, devastating earthquakes, or miners trapped beneath the earth. We even seem to be managing it in dealing with COVID-19. We have global communication, and we know almost instantly what is happening to each other. Just as when one infant in a daycare begins crying, all the others will join them within a few minutes. This is due to something we've recently discovered called mirror neurons, we are softwired for empathy. There's a neuroscientist named Marco Iacoboni, and sir, if I mispronounced your name, I apologize, who's done interesting research on this. So will human beings share the distress of others in trouble. Empathy is, in my view, the most important human emotion even if The Empath was something less than Star Trek's most successful episode. The ability to feel for others is what makes us human. If we have the resources and the technology to meet the first two of Maslow's needs on the hierarchy, people can spend their lives meeting the last three. In other words, Once people no longer need to be concerned with physiological or safety needs, they can spend their lives bettering themselves and the rest of humanity. What would be the result of such a world? (sighs) Well, my crystal ball ran out of batteries, so I can only guess. I believe we would see a reduction in crime, but not its elimination. We would see better and greater technologies emerging because people have the time to devote to learning instead of trying to feed their families. And we would see, most importantly, a happier world where people really, honestly, can work for the betterment of themselves and the rest of humanity. I'm told this is fantasy, and worse, It's socialism. I reject that idea. It can be accomplished, but it's a question of changing our mindset. I have written quite a bit about the need to increase our empathy, and that embracing art is an effective means of doing that. You can find that essay over on my blog in my notes. I'll give you a link. I believe it is wrong to judge a person based on how much money that person earns. The value of a person is much more than their ability to monetize their skills, passions, and abilities. Our value to each other is in what we can do for one another. Empathy is also a part of one's actual value. You can hear that in some of my earlier podcasts, and I also will drop a link to the essay on my blog. So, will we ever live long and prosper? I don't know. I do know, however, it's worth it to try. For Roddenberry to accomplish his society, he needed a eugenics war, and then World War III. The society became a barter system when we had to start over because we had destroyed a quarter of the earth's population and many of our resources. One of my friends, a lifelong member of Slytherin House, believes we could manage this right now by simply removing the populations of India and China and replacing them with trees and arable land. While Kodos the executioner might admire her thinking and endorse her methods I can't. Can we realize Roddenberry's vision without the need for violence and destruction? I certainly hope so. I also know that Edith Keeler believed as I do. And when she managed to talk FDR into delaying our entrance into World War II, the results were disastrous. We lost that war. And with it, the concept of freedom. However, she was right. Peace was the way. She was right, but at the wrong time. Kirk and Spock, City on the Edge of Forever. Keeler asked Kirk, Are you afraid of something? Whatever it is, let me help. Kirk answered, let me help. A hundred years or so from now, I believe, a famous novelist will write a classic using that theme. He'll recommend those three words even over, I love you. That happened on earth in 1930. We're just about a hundred years from that time now. And now, of course, We are involved in a pandemic that is a threat to our very existence. It may well provide the same opportunity provided by the eugenics war and World War III, but I'm hopeful it will provide it with much less death and destruction. This is our chance to pause, reflect, and ask what kind of a world we can build. If you're afraid of something, let me help. The Podcaster. It all started in a little 5,000 watt radio station in Fresno, California. Well, no, that's not actually true. I wonder if it was when Ted Baxter said it. But he used it whenever he gave any sort of speech. And it was always about himself. And this one is about me. Is it a speech? Nah. It's a few minutes of a podcast. This is where I'm going to let you get to know me a little better. Why would I do that? It has to do with connection. My friend, Corey Cottrell, who is essentially the godfather of this show, had a great TED Talk on his page, "A 100 Days, the other day. I don't know the speaker, but she makes the point that the reason we're all on this planet is connection. We need to feel we belong. We want to be accepted. Part of the problem with this is our sense of shame. We all have parts of us that we are afraid to reveal to the world because we fear if you really knew us, you would reject us. We would no longer have any sense of belonging. We would be disconnected. Now I'm not gonna reveal my deepest, darkest secrets, have no fear, but I'm going to give you a little rundown of what I see as being the major facts of Fred. I'm also going to invite you to give me some of the major facts of you. I hope to have something called a Google number before much longer. If it works as I believe it does, You can leave voicemails there and tell us all a little bit about yourself. I suspect some of us will be relieved to know that there are others of us out there who are as strange as we are. I will certainly be happy to hear about you. So, Fred 101. want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. Those are the opening lines of The Catcher in the Rye. It was the first classic I ever read and it flipped around my existence. I was perhaps 14, my father was sure I would like it, and if we're doing David Copperfield crap, my father was the best and wisest man I have ever known. He was a philosopher. Because no one pays philosophers anything, as a guest pointed out a couple of weeks ago, dad earned his money teaching philosophy of education, For more than 30 years at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. He died in October 2019. I have an episode commemorating him on the 10th anniversary of his demise. We moved to Flagstaff when I was nine, and most of the characters you see in my Horace stories are composites of people I knew in Flagstaff. Some of them are friends of mine nearly 50 years later. How strange this world is. You'll hear me talk about Valerie Bertinelli rather frequently. I assumed everyone knew who she is. I learned today that some people don't. I, along with several million other teenage boys, fell in love with Valerie Bertinelli in 1974. She was on a television show called One Day at a Time. She was sweet. She was genuine. She was funny. And she was, quite simply, the most beautiful girl I had ever seen. She was irresistible. And she was always my great impossible dream. Probably the most liked post I ever did on Facebook was the picture of me meeting Valerie Bertinelli. She did a book signing in Tempe. I had no money to buy the book to have her sign. And let's be clear, it's a cookbook. That's what she does now. She cooks on TV. There are few people who know less about cooking than I do. If I can't microwave it, either someone else is cooking or I'm eating cereal. So it wasn't like a new Star Trek book I couldn't wait to read. But buy the book. Stand in line and make my dream come true. So, my best friend gave me 30 bucks and took me to Changing Hands Bookstore, and I met the love of my life. She was very nice. I had nothing intelligent to say to her. And I've been talking for a living all my life. Isn't that just awful? What is this Star Trek thing of yours? You seem to talk about it a lot. I do. I'm a Star Trek fan from way back. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me mention it frequently. In my story, Horace's Run for the Roses, there is the implication that my dedication to Star Trek came from its close association with the death of my grandpa. I wasn't actually there when grandpa died, but I was six or seven, I think, when it happened. Maybe I was eight. That comes up in episode 50, Horace's Final Five. You might want to go back to the Horace stories in this podcast before we get to that episode, so you'll be all caught up. My obsession started, though, when I got away with watching it while Grandma and Grandpa were babysitting me, and they let me stay up late enough to see my first Star Trek episode. City on the Edge of Forever. For the uninitiated, it's the story of Dr. McCoy going back in time, changing history, and destroying the future. He traveled to the past, where he saved the life of Edith Keeler, a pacifist social worker and, at- and activist who, because she lived was able to convince FDR to delay the entrance of the United States into World War II. Hitler won the war. The future was destroyed. She was right. Peace was the way. She had the right idea, but at the wrong time. Did I understand all that at six years old? No. Probably not. In fact, I probably wasn't even six when I first saw that episode. But. Here were my heroes giving up what they loved to make the world a better place. Kirk falls in love with Edith Keeler. He has to stop his friend, McCoy, from saving her life. Even at six, I could feel the emotion in that. I went on to watch all of the original series. I loved that so much that I hated The Next Generation when it started. Bastard captain surrendered my ship in the first episode. The betazoid chick really needed to get a rein on her emotions. And that android was no Spock. Today, I admire Picard's sense of morality even more than Kirk's. I admire his calm courage. I admire his intellect. I admire his compassion. Troy has shown me it's all right to have feelings. Data has shown me one can be sentient, moral, kind, and compassionate without them. Yeah, Star Trek is a big part of me. Hey, have you noticed what we haven't discussed yet? It's one of the first things you would ask me if I were going to marry your daughter. It's probably one of the first things you would ask me if we were having a beer together. What did I do to make a living? Well, I haven't mentioned it yet because I don't think it matters much. I'm by no means ashamed of what I did for money, aside from the fact that at the end I believe it became immoral. It's because I think it's among the least interesting parts of me. Valerie Bertinelli and Star Trek are both more important. I was a teacher, elementary school. If you were paying attention to the Star Trek section, that might have been a good guess to make. I never became a starship captain. But my classroom was my ship, and I had some extraordinary adventures. Someday I might tell you about them. I just don't feel like it now. I'll sum it up. I was a great teacher when they allowed me to be. I was, however, smashed into a mold by the stamping machine on San Saint- on exuperys train by the end. God, I hope I got that right. I can't pronounce that name. I had to get off the train while I still had some self-respect. That may be an episode someday. Now, that's what I did for a living. I quit four years ago. After that, I sold DirecTV for a few depressing months of self-loathing. I taught defensive driving until the world stopped a couple of months ago. Now, this is all of my income. No disability. I was just turned down for that for the second time yesterday. No unemployment. I didn't make enough teaching defensive driving to qualify. And I haven't even gotten a stimulus check. So, yeah... I'm not going to be proposing to your daughter anytime soon. So how did you end up in podcasting? That's a good question. I have a nice segment called Getting It on the opening of the episode that I shared with the Mindwave podcast. You might listen to that so I don't bore my more loyal listeners. I would be surprised to learn there is anyone alive who has heard all 46 or 47 episodes. I have, repeatedly. I don't think my former partner Wimpy has, so I think I'm the only one. My most popular, or at least my most played episode is my pilot, which is approaching its 100th play. I will be excited to reach that mark, and I will also be embarrassed. That episode is really not very good. I had no idea what I was doing. The music was, in a generous estimate, mediocre. And I was just testing the waters. I would hope no one judged this show by that episode. I think my first really good episode was number seven, when I started for the first time actually producing it. I spent a couple hours working out my FDR impression and I think I did it remarkably well. My writing was good. My use of music was great, although I always feel bad because I never really had permission. The beautiful thing about being small is you get to create the best art you can without really worrying about people busting you for it. If someone finally makes me take it down, I will. But a lot of you will already have it, and so will I and it will still be a great piece of work. The Wimpy episodes were an effort to copy the only podcast I really knew very well, the Moving Forward podcast with Rio and Corey. That show launched this one. Rio and Corey had fantastic and enlightening discussions. They were witty and intelligent. They were engaging. I hoped to be able to do that, but... Not so much, no. Wimpy was funny. He was often clever. He gave a good counterpoint to my idealism. But finally, we had very different visions of the show, and he made the decision to leave it. I won't be getting another partner. I think I do this best on my own. I have my own weird ideas, and I am finally able to do what Wimpy couldn't do for the show. I'm making a teeny tiny living at it now. I'm hopeful I can reach the point where I can make an actual living just doing this podcast. If I ever reach $1,000 a month, I will call it successful and I will never again worry about money. That will be enough, so long as I have roommates. So what's up with the Horace stories? There's only one more at least for the moment, and I'm beyond excited about it. My new friend, Jenner Zeno, is composing a soundtrack for it. Can you imagine how good that feels? My friends Mara Armenta and Luis Martinez are covering Hello in there for the end of the story, which, unless I'm much mistaken, will break your heart. It certainly did mine. I've never been more excited about an episode of the show. It was, oddly enough, my 50th blog post. It will also be my 50th episode. I have decided that the Horace, 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 yes, Horace stories are third-person fictional autobiographies. I don't know of anyone else who does that, or maybe everyone else does, and we just don't know that. Almost all of the incidents in those stories are pure fiction. They never happened. The closest thing to reality is the Pier 1 import scene in The Haunting of Horace. The girl upon whom Rhiannon is based, other than Valerie Bertinelli, never actually worked at Pier 1, but another girl upon whom I had a very strange sort of crush did. The job offer Rhiannon makes is my strongest memory of her, but it was at an ice cream shop in the mall. It was the only time in my life she talked to me for more than two minutes. The attic never happened. The football game in Horace's Run for the Roses never happened. But the feelings are all perfectly genuine. I just needed 40 years to get the distance to write about them well. (sighs) Now I've opened up a bit to you. I'm being a little vulnerable. I'm giving you my trust. So, you can reciprocate. Call and leave me a voicemail about you. Why do you like to hang out on the front porch? What is your cause for passion? What do you love? I've never used it before, but I believe if you call 480 three one nine eight two two Once again that's four eight zero three three one nine eight two two You should get some sort of voicemail. I should be able to download that voicemail and use it in an episode of the Front Porch Podcast. If it doesn't work, I apologize profusely. I'm still learning. You can also leave a message right on the podcast itself. If the number doesn't work, please try that. I believe you're limited to a minute on that, though. While on the topic of messages to the show, Deanna, thank you for listening to the COVID episode. I'll be returning to that topic next week. Finally, there are people I need to thank. First, the two who are getting literary pseudonyms. Thank you, Elizabeth Bennett. And thank you so very much, Edith Keeler. Next, Anchor Supporters. Thank you to Laurie Shea, Cindy Mandel, Corey, who helped to found this show, so extra gratitude for that, man. Zara, and Michael J. Clark, who stars in one of the most popular episodes of this show. Finally, I want to thank my Patreon supporters who mean so much to me. Thank you to Andrea Whiffen, Jereen, Corrali Day, and Scott Knight. And by the way, I hope you two enjoyed your book and your CD. Laura Engram, Linda M. Crotter, Natalie Fredrickson, Sherlock, who chose their own literary name. I really don't know who that person is. The mystery is pretty cool. And Zaree. All of you keep this show alive by keeping me alive. You're paying me to do what I love. There's really nothing kinder a person can do. I'm also grateful to those of you who listen whenever you can. There's nothing that makes an artist feel better than someone enjoying their work. And thanks once again to Jenner, who is working himself to death on many projects, including a couple that include me. Thanks, guys. spread. Now let's see if you can download this and use it on the show. Bye. on the Porch. I hope you come back soon. Look for all the episodes at anchor.fm slash forward slash forward slash front porch podcast. We're also now on Spotify, Breaker, and Google Podcasts. Enjoy the rest of your day.